wedding, Jim. But not as we know it. How dare you? Zero, six. It is the relatively late time of 20 minutes to 11 on Thursday, the 29th of June, 2023, and you are listening to the Bashcast. Coming up in this evening's Bashcast, Tom goes down to his local casino for a poker tournament looking for back-to-back victories there, but sits next to someone he really doesn't like and a waitress steals his beer. Let's talk about that and also what's been happening in the WSOP. Golf betting on the exchange. Pete from SBC joins us to discuss his strategies for betting on golf on the exchanges. And then we go into a golf DraftKings fantasy tool. Does it work? Even if it works, is it useful? Can anything be done with it? Let's talk about that. Tom sees a tweet he doesn't like. He talks about it because he doesn't like it. And new tools at Bookie Bashing. Tries, player tries, a data archive tool and an outlier tool. And we finish with shots fired. That's right, actual shots will be fired on the Bashcast as we discuss what on earth is going on over at Betfair Trading Community. All of that and more coming up on the Bashcast in this late evening edition. I went and played some uh, live poker recently. It's been a while. It's hard playing live poker um, with the little kids when your wife's away and you're doing the majority of the... um, the kids stuff because what we're going to do get a babysitter to come and sit in whilst I go and play poker for an unknown amount of hours it's just tough so I think a lot of poker players um who don't treat it as their profession kind of dip in and out pre-children and then when the kids are older so it's been ages I think the last time I played poker was the main event of the WSOP maybe which was a number of years ago it there could have been something i've forgotten in between but i think that was the one so i walked away with a check for fifteen thousand dollars from that tournament which i left in tgi fridays in the hotel um when i had breakfast and it got swept up and taken to the kitchen and thrown into the bin i had to recover that that was fun um so yeah that was the last one um i went into birmingham to some cheese and wine festival but on the way to the cheese and wine festival noticed that there was a Grosner Casino, and I thought, I wonder if there's a poker tournament on tonight. I think I might fancy that more than a cheese and wine festival. And I went in, and I went upstairs, and to my surprise, the same poker event on that Saturday night was on that I'd played a decade ago, um, and I won it a decade ago. Um, and so, technically, I'm the reigning champion in my head. And it's a massive £70 buy-in. So what am I doing playing £70 buy-ins? Well, 
find me a poker tournament for higher stakes than that within a 15 mile radius of my house if there is one i'd like to know about it i don't know of one and that seemed convenient enough and so i played that just for a little bit of fun so yeah last time i played it it was an interesting one it was before the kids and um i remember going there with one mate of mine and my mate was a uh teacher a relatively newly qualified teacher he's a little bit younger than me and um there were 78 entrants and um uh, I got a really big stack really early on. And then because the blind levels were really slow at the beginning, but really fast at the end, I, I decided that I could just leave my stack on the table and go and sit at the bar for an hour or two, which uh, I think annoyed quite a lot of the other people in the tournament because it means that my chips were locked up. It's probably not a fair thing to do in hindsight, but a couple of people arrived at the casino I wanted to talk to. I ended up getting a little bit leathered. And ran that down to the final table. And the final table was like at, I don't know, four o'clock in the morning. It had started at seven in the evening. So it's a relatively turbo-ish, sort of slow and then fast and then faster kind of tournament where you just got to get lucky at the end. Me and my mate, Matt, were both at the final table, which was quite nice. But I remember because there'd been quite a lot to drink, I was quite excited and I had all the chips and I was splashing them around and sort of calling for flops and talking out of turn. And I did get a warning um, which I thought I wasn't egregious. I was probably just annoying. You know what I mean? And we'll come to how far you can take being annoying at the poker table at the end of this poker segment because it's um, sort of made the poker news recently over in the High Roller and the WSOP and what can you get away with and what can't you get away with. But, um, I mean, everyone thinks that they're fun when they're drunk and probably when you're sober and someone else is drunk, they're not as fun as you think that you are. And that was... Tick, sorry, I edited that out because it was about 25 seconds that siren went on for. It must have been stuck outside for some reason. Anyway, um, did get my warning, um, but didn't get ejected. And amazingly, Matt and me ended up heads up at the end of this tournament, maybe at five o'clock in the morning. And because we were mates and relatively even stacked, we just decided to chop it up. We didn't sort of see it through to the end. We just turned around and said, we're done now. Let's take first and second, chop it 50-50, um, and then we'll walk out with the cash. And I remember walking out of that casino and he had this, I don't remember how much was first and second combined. I'd imagine it would be, be I don't know, somewhere in the region of two grand or something like that. Because um, uh, it was a 70 pound buy-in, but rebuy, so maybe 120 odd entrance, 7,000 pounds in there. Uh, maybe more than that, actually. I, I would imagine you maybe 30%, 20%, 30%. So maybe three grand. I don't remember, but um, um, I remember we, we had to get into his clapped-out Renault Clio uh, that he'd bought secondhand, I think for about 250 quid. And there we are um, in the centre of Birmingham with an amount of money that was equal to 20 times the worth of the car in cash, just driving back, thinking, eh, if we're pulled over by the police at this moment in time, it's going to take a little bit of explaining, especially the fact that we're a couple of mates who entered the tournament and ended up heads up out of 78, which is relatively extraordinary. So reigning champion, but reigning sort of reigning joint first with one other guy, champion, and Matt wasn't there for this one, played it on my own. But I walked in, I paid my 70 pounds, sat down, instantly hated the guy to my right. Just one of the most unlikable people. And one of the reasons I do enjoy playing poker isn't so much the money, it's just sat at the table talking to people. And I can talk to anyone, but this guy 
was an arse. He was about my age. He was, um, uh, um, you know, sort of Ralph Ren polo shirt kind of guy. Probably had an expensive car, but didn't re- couldn't really afford it. That kind of individual. You know what I mean? Um, and he seemed to know everyone at the table, the majority of the people at the table. So they were regulars and he would turn up every week. And he was especially friendly with the guy to his right. And I'm to his left. So I am in position to this um, unpleasant individual. And I sit down and the first thing I do is I'm just staring and going through the chip amounts because I'm not entirely sure how much I'm starting with or what the denominations are of the colours at the casino, because it's been a while since I play. So I'm sort of staring at that. And then as the game starts, I'm big blind. And I didn't realise it was a big blind anti-tournament. I haven't played very many big blind anti-tournaments, and I was just a little bit confused at the concept. There shouldn't have been. It was just I was I put my big blind out, and then I put one anti out. But in a big blind anti-tournament, the big blind puts the anti out for every player on the table. It just saves time. Assuming that you're all going to anti every hand in an orbit anyway, why not just have the big blind do it? It does make sense. Saves time, makes it a little bit easier. Um, it's a double cost, if you like, to the big blind, and, and does get you if you're sort of... Uh, you know, you're big blind and then you move to a table and you're big blind again. That the tournament directors do need to keep an eye on that in a big blind anti-tournament. But, um, I, yeah, I just didn't quite get it. And I, it was being explained to me, but I didn't um, understand it immediately. And so you had those two things that I'd done immediately at the table, just not being particularly aware of the structure of the tournament um, and also not knowing what the chip denominations are. And my friend to my right, turned to me and went is this your first tournament in a really smug way and so i'm going to be the fish if you want some and i was just like yeah yeah this is my first tournament and then um turns to the person he knows to the right and goes we've got someone over here that's never played before as if he's licking his chops that's not a way to behave to newcomers at the table if you're 14 years old it's really annoying when people sort of snigger about you behind your back but in front of you when I'm 45 years old, I could care less. Other than, I just think you're a dick. <laughs> I, I don't like you as a person. Um, and so I'm not affected by it. I, I don't need this guy as my friend. It doesn't, it doesn't make me feel bad in any way, but I could see how it would make others feel bad. And so I didn't like the guy, and I wanted to stack him. So I came up with a little bit of a premise. I was like, I'm going to play it tight and have a tight image. I'm going to cultivate two rounds of maybe a tight image if I can. Uh, hopefully I get some junk cards because I want to appear tight. I'll maybe get into a pot and fold for a min bet, stuff like that. And then I'm just going to completely reverse that strategy and see if I can flop a monster. And my tight image should mean that I can collect a little bit of chips off this chap because he seemed to be entering every pot on the hope that I was entering the pot. And so if he entered a pot for a small amount, maybe he was he was limp he was limping a lot, so he obviously didn't have a great poker strategy. So I would limp behind him, really just so that I could fold to a min bet on the flop to him to cultivate this sort of um sort of sort of fishy, tight um way of playing that I can be bluffed off pots. And after a couple of orbits where fortunately I didn't have anything that, you know, I wanted to play, I looked down and I'm in the big blind and my, sorry, I'm in the small blind and my friend is on the button and I look at three, seven off and, I, and he min raised the pot 
um, in a button versus small blind. And so I called it and the big blind fold, folded and it was the two of us to the flop. So I've got three seven off and the flop comes three of clubs, seven of spades, three of clubs. Absolute jackpot. So two clubs and one spade on the flop. And I say out loud, oh yeah, that's a lot of clubs. I just blurt it out as if I've seen three clubs. And then my um, annoying friend says, there are two clubs and one spade there. Do you need new glasses? <laughs> yeah, I do need new glasses. I thought there were a lot of clubs there. And then I check my hand again as if I'm just checking, as if I'm looking for a flush. And I'm thinking, um, all right, okay, I'm going to bet this half pot and see what he does. So I bet at half pot, essentially with the nuts, and he re-raises me. And so I sheepishly call saying um, that club is going to come out loud. Um, and the turn is a king of diamonds. Great card, because I hope he's hit it. And I decide to check this one. He raises me quite large, and I just call it. And the river comes down the ace of hearts. Bingo. If he's come in with any hand, any king, any ace, he's hit something. He thinks he's ahead. The flush hasn't hit. And he thinks I'm chasing the flush. So the question is, how much do I... I bet, if anything, on the river. So I, if I check it to him, he is going to bet, but he's going to bet an amount that he thinks that I'm going to call, if you know what I mean. Um, and if I busted my flush, he's no, he knows that I'm not going to call a lot. So he can't bet a lot if I check. So I decide to raise it three quarters pot, almost the entire pot, to allow him to try and bluff this off me. And that's what I do. And he stares at my raise and he's thinking how much to re-raise and his ego gets the best of him and he just pushes all in. So whatever he's got, if he's missed his draw, whatever, he just doesn't think I've got anything. And that was glorious. And I wanted to slow roll him, but I couldn't. So I just immediately called. And um, he was very surprised to see the call and I turned over 3-7 off for the flopped full house. And he thrusted his hand onto the table, hit it really hard. No, like that. Um, he was angry and I was so happy that he was angry um, and then he got up off his seat without even pushing any chips in my direction and just stormed off mumbling under his breath and there was nothing more fun than busting this guy um, I then had a fun table there was a comment on the table from the opposite side of it that I remember they were talking about sports betting um, and what are you going to do in my position I'm never going to turn around and sort of if it, sports betting at pubs bars clubs casinos is so common and it's really not the position of any proper pro punter to sort of chime in and um say i've got a lot of knowledge because it's a weird thing to do it's why you never tell anyone at a party that you're a professional gambler there's no good thing that comes out of it so i just like to sit and listen but they were talking horse racing and someone showed that he had a decent day on the horse racing and he showed a bet slip from Skybet or Bet365 or something like that. And the guy he's chatting to said very loudly, you might have won today, but you can't win long term. It's not possible with the amount of margin that the bookmakers put on top of horses. And I've always said this, he said, I challenge anybody to show me a sample size of 1,000 horses. And if they're in profit after 1,000 horses... I'll give them a thousand pounds because it can't be done because nobody is. And I'm just sat on the other side of the table. 
at this time, this was before the uh, the betting awards, Bookie Bashing was the gold award for the best horse racing tipster in 2022. We're now silver, but at the time we were gold. So I feel like <laughs> this was an inopportune time for this person to set the challenge. And I did wonder whether I should pipe up and say anything. The problem is he'd have to look at a thousand bet slips one after the other to do it. And it's a stupid thing for me to do anyway. So I just smirked and listened, but didn't say anything whilst this conversation was going to go. Anyway, um, the rest of the tournament was ABC. It was pretty easy. It was very soft. There was a lot of dead money in there. And I just ran it all the way to the final table at four o'clock in the morning. The worst thing that happened to me was um, as a table broke, um, somebody, t- I, I knocked the person out to my right in a relatively straightforward hand. Um, and they got up and left. And the weight just came over and picked up the table behind us, and my beer. And my beer was pretty much full. And the beer at the Groves and the Casino is like eight quid these days. And by the way, why is no one else drinking? Why is it only me that drinks? Is it me? Do the kids today not just drink until four o'clock in the morning if they're playing a poker tournament? Or is it me that's got the problem? Don't you say the latter? Perfectly comfortable with all of the drinking. Um, so she picked up my, the table and my drink, and I was kind of, I'm the tightest Scotsman in the entire world when something's thieved from me. And so I mentioned it to the waitress and I sort of said, um, look, there was a full beer there and it cost me eight quid and it was taken away. And she went, oh, I'm very sorry about that and didn't offer anything up. And I went, well, would it be possible to get another beer for me? And she went, well, I can get another beer for you, but that'll be eight pounds. And I went, no, 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 but they took my full beer. I mean, it may not have been you, but someone took my full beer. And the dealer saw it as well. And the dealer was like, yeah, I did see it. They took the guy's beer. And the waitress was like, well, we we can't just give you a free beer from the bar. It's outrageous. I'm really annoyed at this moment in time. And I said to the dealer, is this fair? And give credit to the dealer, because I was being quite nice to the dealer. We were on a lot of chat backwards and forwards. The dealer went to the tournament director. And the tournament director came over to me and said, the dealer says that a waitress took your full beer. Don't you worry about it. I'm going to sort you out with a full beer. Well, guess what? It never came. And so I could have got up at four o'clock in the morning at the start of the final table to go and get myself a beer and pay eight pounds out of my own pocket. But I'm not going to pay eight pounds out of my own pocket when someone's stolen my beer. Forget about the fact that we're in the money and I've got a minimum of like 200 quid coming back in my direction. I'm not paying another eight pounds for a beer. You take that out of the ROI of my tournament, I'm probably negative EV in that tournament. So I'm not doing it. At the same time, I want a beer. It's four o'clock in the morning. I can't stay awake without beer. I need the beer. It's Saturday night. The beer, beer, beer. No one else is drinking. I wanted my beer. My beer was taken away from me. Get me a beer. It's the fair thing to do. And I waited and I asked and I waited and I asked and it never, ever came. And then I got busted in um, fifth position, getting it in with Ace Jack, ran into Ace Queen. So, you know, it's one of those things when the structure sped up so much that there was there was nothing else I was going to do in that position. It would have been wrong to fold, and I just happened to run into a better hand, and um, didn't spike my jack, and um, I left in fifth position. So my last two caches in this eighty-person uh, freeze out up in the Grosvenor and Birmingham, ten years apart, was first joint first, but let's just call it first, first and fifth. I thought I was going to go back to backers. Back-to-backers in an 80-person tournament is not too impressive. But the whole thing blighted for, for, uh, for me by the fact that in the last hour, I had a drink 
taken from me and I'm too tight to get myself another drink because I was waiting for a drink to come but the drink never came. So whole experience ruined. Um, I think I was a little bit sober, more sober this time than last time. So I was probably less annoying, which brings us on to the antics of Martin Cabrell in the um, $250,000 buy-in, which I think I discussed in a previous Bashcast. I wasn't uh, wasn't going to go and play this summer. No, no, I wasn't going to go and play the $250,000 buy-in. Instead, I played the £70 buy-in. That's right. But um, in this tournament, you should Google this if you haven't seen it, the antics of um, Martin Cabrell. I think it's K-A-B-R-H-E-L. Uh, Czech, um, a Czech player who is infuriatingly annoying, just talks and talks and talks in the most annoying way. But also he was doing a very odd thing where I think he was making it look like he was cheating by marking cards. He would always have like two fingers on a card and then one finger on the back of a card as if he was putting some sort of ink or dye onto the back of the card um, that only he could see with maybe special contact lenses or something like that. And it it wasn't just his table antics that were annoying when he was um, talking to people and annoying the hell out of them and just non-stop rabbiting on. But it was also what he was doing with his hands and then he was standing up and looking behind people's chairs as if he was looking for information and a sign that was there, but was it there or wasn't there? And there was, a, I think, a um, community of poker players that were asking for him to be banned because he was marking the deck. So... If you want to have a look at that, go to YouTube, Google Martin Cabrell antics or something like that, WSOP. My personal thoughts, I don't think you can cheat because the WSOP keep the deck and if you're marking the cards, they're going to find it. Um, but what I do think he was doing is I think he was making it look like he was pretending to cheat so that people thought that he was cheating, but he wasn't cheating. Now, should that be against the rules? Personally, I think it's genius. I think he wound people up in a super high roller so that they would play suboptimally against him. And it's all part of the fun. Going out for a game of poker is nothing but theatre. If someone on the table is annoying, be more annoying than them. If someone's talking, talk more than them. Don't just sit there in silence. It's meant to be a social experience. I know at the super high roller level, the $250,000 buy-in, possibly a little bit more on the line than the £70 tournament down at the Grosner. But it's the same concept. What are we doing? We're just spending time in our lives playing a silly little game for an amount of money and trying to have as much fun. Maybe some people don't see it like that. Maybe they see it as a return on investment or an ROI that has to be attained, but I don't. Why turn up if you're not going to enjoy yourself? And my uh, opinion, Cabrell wasn't cheating. He was making it look like he was cheating to annoy the hell out of other players. And to me, that just makes it a more exciting game overall. Right, in golf, uh, I'm not I'm not going to go through the recent results, despite the fact bagged a winner last weekend, but um, uh, Keegan Bradley, yeah, I've talked about it now. I'm more going to talk about a couple of different angles, specifically because we had a message in uh, to support from Steve-O36, who said, good evening, a general query I've been intending to ask for a long time, and that is betting, Betfair, exchange or markets for golf selections. It would be nice to get some information on the method used to find selections and why. Is it possible to speak about it on the next Bashcast? 
if possible. You did say the word possible twice a bit too frequently in that sentence, but despite that grammatical error, I'm going to go ahead and do that, Steve. It's a good recommendation. I like having recommendations on the Bashcast. I don't cover old ground. Now, I can and I will go through my particular strategy, the results of which are up on Bookie Bashing, but I've got on the line Pete Ling from Smart Betting Club. Hi, Pete. What's up? And Pete said to me recently, um, he was betting win only on the exchange and doing relatively well. And I asked him if I could mention his figures and he went one better and said that he'd be happy to come on and talk about his strategy. Is that fair? Yeah, totally fair. Totally fair. You know, I'm doing it one way and I'm sure there's probably different ways to do it and maybe even better ways to do it. But uh, happy to talk about what I do. Uh, Your... ROI, which was on my WhatsApp, which I've closed down because it goes beep, beep, beep anytime anyone sends a message, um, was, come on, open up, 1,000, can you tell I'm delaying? I can tell 1,871 <laughs> <laughs> 1, 1, bets for a 59.06% ROI, which is a very large ROI across any amount of sports betting. Is that this year or is that all time? That's basically 12 months. So I started doing this 12 months. June 22. And I just, hmm. I've got a list of 97, 93 tournaments. Um, that I've- right. And that, that includes all, you know, if there's live, if there's TP, um, I've, I've skipped a few. I, I will say I skip, I skip the, you know, the, the majors because they're hugely competitive and you end up getting a lot down, perhaps not to win too much. Um, you know, the ideal tournaments really, in my mind, are the one we've got this week, um, the Rocket Mortgage. Cause the Rocket they, Mortgage, yeah, yeah. You've got Ricky Fowler and Tony Finau, favourites at 16s. You know, so you don't have to worry about John Rahm destroying the field. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Rahm effect. Yes, or Rory. Or so someone. how do you go? So how do you go about choosing? Uh, and I genuinely don't know the answer to this, so I, um, um, I'm interested to hear. How do you go about choosing who it is that you're going to bet on, win only on the exchange in the tournaments that you choose? Yeah, so I will use the golf tracker. Um, I use that as a really important aspect of that. So if there's value on the golf tracker, and I'm trying to identify those players whereby it's not perhaps one bookmaker offering standout terms, whereby that is indicating the value. You know, maybe Boyle Sports going first ten or something like that, and and then the the particular player isn't strong value with any other terms. And generally looking for those. Um, you know, it's ideal if you can find that. Firms that are the players that I value are the first five, um, because obviously that's indicative of um, you know you're not just taking enhanced place terms there. Um, and I will also to look at that and try and find players that I value across the board across several bookmakers, not just because of those enhanced one-off place terms uh, with you know significant firms. So you know I think I've seen this today ten better offering our friends at ten better offering. Stupid prices on a couple of players, which has made someone 167% EV. So, um, 
that's your first yellow card. Okay, a, a, another mention of that firm, and it's going to be a red. Just let you know. <laughs> okay. Um, yes, quite happy not to give them any publicity. That's for sure. Um, unless it's negative. Um, so uh, yeah, so that that's one approach. I, I also look at, um, you know, you got you're not going to get too many at big prices that win. Maybe more on the DP, and perhaps even more on the live golf. Um, or bigger prices, and uh, so you know, while what's you a might, big, what's a big price to you in three, golf? Where, three, where do you put that threshold? Three figures, three figures. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah. uh, well, three figures in terms of bookmaker odds, so you know, 100 to one plus, yeah, because invariably you're taking you know, bookmaker might be offering an each way bet at 66 to one, you're going to get 85 90 mm-hmm. on bet fair to win on that player, um, yeah. And it seems there is that sweet spot between you know twenty to one, perhaps twenty five to one to sixty six to one to seventy five to one, yeah. where that's where the most players win uh, of value. And um, you know, obviously, there's a good proportion that win under twenty to one, but you know, you're having to stake a lot to win not much uh, on those guys. And you have to question if there are value there as well. I mean, there's a little bit of fave long shot that comes into that as well, because as the prices get higher at the bookmaker, the gap between the bookmaker price and the exchange price inevitably grows. And so uh, you're giving a lot up um, sort of a lot of equity of information, if you like. Um, the bookmaker thinks someone's good at 100 to 1. He could be 300 or higher, really, at that price. And um, um, as the fave long shot bias grows with the bookmaker's edge, the efficiency of the information becomes less quality, if you like. Yeah, that's all things to, to bear in mind. Certainly, what I do find sometimes as well supported or well fancied players, you you'll often find they are close to being arms. Um, you know, so that would, especially in a liquid market would indicate a good degree of support on a certain player. The one that springs to mind, probably because he's more recent, is Tom McKibben, the the chap from the same club as Rory in, in Northern Ireland, Hollywood. Um, yeah, you know, he 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 won, and uh, I think he was. Fairly well supported. I think there's a bit of Monday value around that got snaffled by a few tips. This, but then, you know, he was still value at 100, 125 to one, and I think, or maybe it was a bit less. But I remember the odds were quite quite close. Um, you know, like a hundred. Mm-hmm. Normally, you say if you're getting a hundred to one shot, you're getting 150. But for some players, you find there's significant market support on them, and you know, it's not much of a gap between what they are. With bookmakers, with bookmakers, and what they are on, on, on the machine. Well, he, he would have um, opened up quite big on the exchange um, and opened up at what he was at the bookmaker, 125. So it was good to see him win, a first win as well. Um, and then that, as the smart money and tipster money and syndicate money comes in from him, that gap narrows, which is naturally why he grows in EV on the tracker. And so it's one of those reasons why the golf trackers may be highlighting some of this money because you're way more likely to get these steamers being plus EV than you're going to get drifters. Exactly. Yes. Uh, and there are all things to bear in mind. Um, so sometimes obviously I have access to a lot of golf tipsters and sometimes I see players that are EV just because they've put them up and obviously there's there's money that's supporting them on the exchange. So you have to weigh, weigh up like, you know, how good is that tipster and how useful is that information to you? Um, I remember you sent me a report of that privately. I never published it, but you sent it just privately to me. I was so interested in that, Pete, because we didn't design the golf tracker like that. That wasn't one of the things we thought would happen when we designed the golf tracker. But then when you think about it, 
tipsters put their selections out, prices get driven down on the exchange, and naturally, yeah, they do jump up to be plus EV. It was an it was an accidental bonus of the construction of the tracker. It, it shows you how it picks up where the market. Mm-hmm. Where people that want to, which players they want to back, whether that be tipsters or whether that be, you know, some of the syndicates, professional betters, it is a really good way of basically picking that up without having access to that information. So it's almost like a good, I remember sending that to you. I guess it's almost like a challenge. Can I pick out who's just been put forward by which tipster by looking at the, um, looking at the golf tracker? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So that, that is one of the benefits because when they're steaming in, when, um, on the exchange, um, when prices are heading in that direction, we are much more likely to beat the closing line than we are if something is drifting and beating the closing line is really the overall game of what it is that we're trying to do. So do you bring um, anything else into your decision-making such as field coverage? Do you have a max or a min um, or um, other you, you know, other data sources um, that you bring into your decision making outside of bookie bashing? Yeah, so uh, I do. In terms of uh, field percentage chance, I'm looking generally about twenty percent, twenty to twenty five percent. It really depends upon how much value there is. If I can't find value, I don't force it. So if I have to take less than I would prefer to, I, I will do that. Um, and I'm not scared about taking players and maybe a, only a smaller percentage EV, you know, 102%, 103%. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it is indicative of still there's value there. And I know you do that yourself for the weekly golf value and your own bets because, you know, the guys that are high, high value are often high odds. So, sure. Um, and, and, yeah. and so on. Like you don't, I mean, you'll see the 500 to one guys at the top of the tracker, but I don't remember the last 500 to one winner on either tour. Yeah. No, exactly. And that, that you're going to go a long time between drinks before that happens. And so, yes, I, I do that and I try and identify those in that sweet spot. Um, I will still take those at a higher value, um, sorry, higher odds, because some do win. I think Daniel Gavins is one from memory, Oki Stridham's another from mm-hmm. memory. Um, but they don't happen too often. Um, and uh, yeah, I try and fill it with those that have that sweet spot. And uh, and, and take, you know, like 20% uh, about that, maybe sometimes over, I grow my bank um, gradually in line with profits. And I do use some other filters, so I have access to a lot of information. So I try and identify those players that have been ident- you know, well-supported or well-tipped and then want to be on them. But sometimes they're always at the front. There's quite a lot at the front end of the market. So, you know, you have to take a, make a decision. Do I really, how many of these can I take? Yeah, so this week we've got the British Masters. And I think from memory, we had Moronk, McIntyre, uh, Jay, Jordan Smith, Justin Rose, all heavily backed, mm. tipped, but they're all really short. So how many of those yeah. do you take? And I think I just, I've just taken uh, Bobby McIntyre out of them because he was... 38, I think, something mm-hmm. like that. And the others, yep, if they win, if, if, if a player wins and he's 16 to 1, 20 to 1, well, yeah, you're not going to win on that tournament. But um, I don't think you win too much um, with a strategy like this, backing too many players at those uh, shorter odds. Um, yeah, I agree. What was Rose for this tournament? I know he was the favourite. Um, um, I might just bring up his bet fair graph. Single digits. I, I, I'm sure I saw yeah, he was. Yeah. I thought he was, he was too short. Yeah. Um, I didn't do any in-depth analysis where I was trying to price up the field. So this this was kind of back of a fag, fag packet mathematics. But just having a look at his graph, graph yeah, I mean, on Betfair, he was he went off at 11.0. He shot 65 in on day one, and he's now 2.9, which smacks to me of being way too short. But um, 
I feel like you can't back him at that, but then sometimes he is just going to win. So what can you do? You're just going to, uh, these tournaments where the favourites win, generally mug punters are going to do well. Pro punters and bookmakers are going to do badly when that happens. Mm. And you look at players like Wyndham Clark, um, being a classic example of this, a player, I don't know how many times you've backed him or I've backed him before he actually went on to win. The first tournament he won when he was 80 to 1, was he? Uh, and then obviously he's just won the US uh, when he was a lot, maybe half that price, if not below. And now he's going to be within the first five of the next tournament, no doubt, depending upon the makeup of it. But his invariably the value of players like that have gone, um, and uh, the same for like Justin Rose. You know, you might want to pick him out. You might find you backing him when he's fifty to one in a more of a stacked field yeah. uh, versus the fact that you're taking him as a favourite. And often it's those events which are like these events like this week where you have a weak favourite, if you will, uh, or weak favourites, yeah. where you don't have a Rose, uh, you don't have a Ram. So you don't have a Rory, you don't have a Ram, you don't have a Scheffler, you don't have some of these guys who on their day can just destroy a field and, you know, and when they get on a roll, they're very, you know, they're very hard to to kind of overlook. Um, and so that's just part of it. You know, one thing I would suggest is, I, I don't know if I'm, this is the ideal strategy, the way I'm doing it. And, and I'm good to come on something like this because if people have feedback about how to improve it or take a different approach, that would be important. And I haven't reviewed it for SBC because I was only 93 tournaments in uh, and I want to get a bigger data sample. But I would say bankroll, mm-hmm. you know, I, I was just looking and I had 14 tournaments where I won once at the start of the year. Yeah. And yeah. So, so I mean, if, if that's two and a half tournaments a week, um, you know, that's five. That's a long time to sort of um, be what to have a little bit of investment and in watching the tournaments and. Um, it can it, it takes patience, doesn't it? It does. Uh, it takes more so with the win strategy because you're going to come second, you're going to lose a playoff. And I'm looking at that in that period. Yeah. I had three seconds. Um, Rob won, uh, Homer won, Rory won. So it was all, you know, it was just a period where, you know, lots of favourites were winning or players that I w- weren't on or players I w- were on lost came narrowly second. And it can be frustrating but like that. But then, you know, uh, Outside of that, that bad run, uh, there were some wins which made pretty much all of that back anyway. So um, you just need to have some, yeah, nerves of steel and a good bankroll, and you know, be prepared to mm-hmm. go three or four months just losing money sometimes. I'm looking at what we've got up. We've got the exchange win only graph up on um, well, d- data set up on the um, golf results page which I updated last on the 15th of May. So I think there's been one or two winners since then. But this is outrageous, Pete. Um, your ROI, completely independent, taking your own bets, is, after 1,871 bets, 59.06. Yep. 59.06. The one on the bookie bashing site is 59.07 over 2668. <laughs> Bets, which is nothing other than a stupid coincidence. But um, I've plotted the graph here. and I see the longest drawdown, not in terms of ROI, but in terms of just time, was one year and three months. That's one year and three months where you're down after all of that, and it's still a profitable strategy after four years. Um, it is definitely not for everybody. And there are certainly occasions where I've busted 
a bankroll and then reloaded and then that bankroll has got busted. But then you wait for that little bit of time where you get two or three winners in a short period of time and the graph just goes crazy. There's nothing There's nothing crazier than a golf win-only betting history, that's for sure. Yeah, exactly. And, and lately it's been phenomenal, you know, in terms of May and June. Mm-hmm. For what I've been doing, it's been very successful. So if you just called, if we had this call at the end of April, it might have been a different kind of conversation and very different figures, I'm sure. It's still mm-hmm. profitable, but I think it was hovering around maybe even 20 25%. So sort of late, it's done particularly well. So I do expect some adjustment mm-hmm. to that that figure and you know i'm i'm not going to complain if, if it wins but equally i'm not going to be too surprised if you know i now go on a sequence of losing or at some mm-hmm. point um yeah so it's uh yeah it's a strategy that works and so far and mm-hmm. uh what gave me what gave me the confidence is the stats that you have on the um mm-hmm. your strategy applying it to the win approach and that, that's a bigger data sample um so yeah, I'll continue to do it, and uh, it's just a way of using the information in a different approach. You know, if each mm-hmm. way gets closed off to you, as perhaps many of your listeners and SPC bookie bashing members will suffer at some point once they do well. But, mm-hmm. You know, it's just adapting to a different approach. I mean, it, that adapting is very important because going from each way to win um, can be challenging for a, a lot of people. It's purely a variance thing. Each way. Um, if you're covering 10 to 15% of the field, you're hoping you've got about a 50% chance of a place and maybe money back. Here, you know, if you're covering 10 to 15% of the field, you've really got to be strapped in for months of losing runs. Let's say you are Johnny Beginner. You've only ever done some each way betting, but you found that the bookmakers have started to restrict you and you don't necessarily have access to the Betfreds, to the independents and Paddy Powers that lay bets in shops and you are just looking at exchanges. What advice would you give to that person that wants to start out on their um, win-only exchange betting journey? Well, first of all, I would make sure that your bank is of a required size to cover perhaps 20, 25 losing tournaments on, on the bounce and uh, so you're not staking well it depends on how how risky you wish to approach it but i would suggest you probably want mm-hmm. a good amount of cushion within that and obviously yeah. a patient so approach. 100 pounds per tournament uh, you want about 2500 pounds uh bankroll um if that's what you were staking um i mean that, that that's very loose because i'm not talking about field coverage in that yeah. but for you at 20 percent field coverage you think if i'm staking 100 quid in the tournament i need about 2500 quid in the bankroll yeah yeah something like that um it, it depends mm-hmm. on your approach and attitude to risk but especially if starting mm-hmm. out and trying out a strategy um it, you know i feel like that's the best approach i would say skip the majors because they are so competitive you may also want to skip any any other events whereby there's a heavy front end bias to the field, um, and uh, or uh, you know I would also look at avoiding events whereby there's not much liquidity. So I think the Scandinavian mixed tournament that we had recently was, was yeah, that's a mad tournament to, yeah. to do. Yeah, that was one I, I wish I hadn't got involved with, and I won't in the future mm. uh, because hindsight's a wonderful thing. <laughs> yeah, so I'm still still learning. So I would definitely do that, and then. Try and focus on those within that um, sweet spot. Uh, perhaps, probably twenty-five to one towards you know eighty to one uh, around that mm-hmm. that amount. And don't you know take a few that are higher than that? Absolutely, because they do win. Um, yeah, who was the, there was another guy, the Canadian guy, I think, um, Adam Svensson, who won uh, yeah. last year, and he was 
150, 200. Uh, and you'll see some of those players uh, like the Andrew Novaks of this world and Shanks that uh, are kind of creeping up on uh, in the market and did start off at a higher price. And Oki Strydum is another that uh, has won a few times uh, and his odds have come in subsequently. So you don't don't feel afraid to take that. And um, yeah, don't you can't take them all either on the defense slice. You might have to make decisions and, you know, you might take a player and the one you leave out goes on to win and you curse yourself. Well, you, you just can't take 40, 50% of the field. You know, you pick an amount you wish to take uh, moving forward, how much you wish to risk, and uh, just uh, identify those whereby the support is significant rather than just being based upon, you know, one standout um, firm offering enhanced place terms because that just might indicate those place that those odds on those place terms are outliers of the market whereby if you're getting this value on players which are across all different bookmakers and especially those maybe not offering uh two you know first five or first six that that generally is indicative of of, uh, of some support for that player it seems yeah, that ties in with the majors as well. When they're starting to go 10, 11, 12 places, you start to lose that little bit of information of how useful any of these um, the, the tracker information is on what what they're going to win because all of a sudden it's becoming about second to 12th, not first, as opposed to if it's value at five places, well, it, it, there's a lot more information there. Yeah, and, and the other thing, I don't hedge, you know, hedging's for gardeners. So mm. I had... Um, hedging, it is. Nick yeah. Taylor, Nick Taylor in that playoff with Tommy Fleetwood. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I live out in Canada now, so I was watching that. I wish I could have gone, but um, I was watching that at the time in between trying to bath the kids. And they went to four playoff holes, <laughs> and I'm thinking, I should just go on Betfair and lay some of this off. And I'm glad I didn't, obviously, because he went on to win with that ridiculous putt. Um, but, yeah, sometimes you just got to ride it out. And, you know, I had Gavin Green, I think, when he was six shots clear, and God knows how odds on he was trading. He went on to lose somehow. So... Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, it certainly tests the nerves sometimes. Um, I had Adam Hadwin to be rugby tackled by a security guard <laughs> at a hundred to one in that tournament, and I'm uh, I'm going to be living off that for the rest of my I think my days. Yeah. Well, look, I think sorry, go I think I think Tony Calvin had him earlier in the week at three hundred to one. <laughs> oh, damn it! I knew I could have got a bigger price. Damn you, Tony. Okay, well, good look. Great tips there. Great bit of advice. I pref- I much prefer someone else coming on and talking about their strategy than me just sort of um, going through a little bit of all ground. So appreciate that, Pete. And um, yeah, we- if it's okay with you, we will catch up soon. Yep, we'll catch up soon. Okay. Cheers, Pete. Thank you. Thanks very much. <laughs> we'll chat a bit more tomorrow then, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> right. If I now make sure I do this right, do I press stop? Um. So... That was Pete discussing the edges on the exchanges, something that I do week in, week out myself as well, with quite a lot of success over time. Um, I, I don't have my exact ROI, but yeah, mine's higher than each way betting. Um, there is that caveat that it's going to take a good 10 years to get the sample size there, but the theory seems to stand up anyway. Another strategy um, that I use and that I know other, certainly bookie bashing members and Duncan uses um, is fantasy golf lineups so um what i've done over time is essentially exactly the same um theory that um players on the tracker 
are highlighted as value, not just in each way terms, but also because they are steaming in and beating the closing line. And so there's no reason why they shouldn't be reasonable players to put into, for example, a DraftKings lineup where you might select six players with a $50,000 cap um, and um, they get various points for streaks of birdies and where they finish in the tournament. I mean, generally, if you get first, second and third, you're going to be doing very well, possibly winning. So it's something I've been doing for time. Um, can't report on my ROI because I don't know it off the top of my head, but it seems to be doing quite well. So we had a discussion. This really was sort of something that we had for, with a long-time member as well. Could we come up with the development of some sort of tool? Now, there's a fundamental issue with all fantasy lineup tools, and um, Data Golf ran into this problem, and that is that if you have an algorithm that creates the optimal lineup and then you make that available to a number of people, everyone's going to be on that lineup. And you actually see it at DraftKings. Um, um, when Data Golf have a team that's doing particularly well, you might see 20 people with exactly the same team. And that, in essence, is like picking numbers 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 in the lottery. You've got exactly the same chances of winning as anybody else. Maybe, as opposed to the lottery, you've got an edge. But you have to be conscious of the fact that you're not going to be the only people with that unique set of numbers or that unique lineup. And then, therefore, if you win, your returns are going to be diluted. And that is a big problem. It's a, it's a major issue with coming up for a tool for um, um, mass use for fantasy golf. We did go ahead anyway and do some R&D in the background. So we created a tool that comes up with the number one optimal lineup based on the week-to-week -week, uh, prices at DraftKings of the players. And we use um, um, some algorithms to work out the odds for the winner from the tracker and second and third from the tracker. We have a feed that comes in to make the cut where we can't get fair odds. We uh, do some various investigation of other data sources, a little bit of data golf, a little bit of linear interpolation between prices to see if we can come up with some sort of anal regression analysis, something like that. Um, and we use those odds to multiply the finishing position points plus a static per round expectation based on finishing position and the make the cut odds, essentially to come up with these optimal teams. And we did this and we pushed it live to ourselves and it's quite good. You, Duncan was testing it out on the US Open. He had Rory McIlroy, he had Shoufley, he had Cam Young, Fleetwood, Ricky Fowler, Russell Henley. One of the things about the DraftKings tournaments is um, you could be doing badly uh, like in mid or bottom half position of the tournament. Let's say top 10% are paid. You could be in 50th, 60th place, 60th percentile. That's not great for a top 10 being paid. But if all six of your players make the cut, then you have a massive edge over someone that only... One, they may be on the winner, but they've only got three players making the cut because... That means that half the team are going to get zero points through round three and round four, whereas all six of your players are going to score points in round three and round four. So um, making the cut is really important in um, in DraftKings fantasy golf tournaments, and that's exactly what happened um, uh, to Duncan's team in the U.S. Open. All six made the cut. Um, he ended up finishing 
29th out of... I can't quite tell because it doesn't say in this screenshot, but that looks like, I don't know, a good 1,200, 1,300 people. And that is a sample size of one on testing the tool, but that was the number one um, team that came out. Um, we can't prove anything from that um, analysis or that sample size. Um, it, 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 it may not even be worthy of note. However, um, it gives us a little bit of, you know, an early win gives you some confidence to go forward. Unfortunately, we simply can't push it out as a live tool. Not at Bucky Bashing, probably not anywhere, because the number one team can't be taken by more than one person without diluting the return that anyone on that team would get. What do we do? Do you do a queue system where you log on, you see a team, and then that team doesn't get shown to anyone else? Doesn't seem particularly fair, because now we're in a sort of Glastonbury tickets, fastest finger first, getting onto the track of wins. It doesn't seem to be particularly meritocratic. So... I don't have a solution. Um, whilst we don't have a solution, we were hoping we could come up with this R&D R &D project and then work on this and find a solution. Don't have one at this moment in time. And it's possible it's one of those projects that just has to sit in the background because um, um, you ruin it by pushing it live. If you have any suggestions on anything that we could do that could improve this, that could make it something that could be better than what Data Golf have and where the same team isn't presented to every single person, but we could still do something in a fair manner, drop us a line at tom at bookybashing.net and give us the suggestions because I'd be very interested to know what people think. Twitter time, that lovely um, area of the universe that is Twitter. Um, Pete, who was on earlier, um, the Smart Betting Club, published uh, SBC Awards 2023, how you voted best betting expert, gold, Steve Palmer, silver, Johnny Deneen, bronze, Neil Channing, seventh, Tom Brownlee. I demanded a recount because Tench was tenth in this. Um, Icy Stretto. Have you heard of this guy? He's Icy. He is icy, and he's got a blue tick. Says, um, uh, this is some load of bollocks. Icy has 14.5k uh, followers, is following 1,800 people, um, including me. Um, he says, Steve Palmer has been closed for problem gambling by a big firm. Uh, Johnny Denin, or Denen tells us about 8% of his actual knowledge. Neil Channing, if you gave me his card on a piece of paper, I'd roll it in a ball and fuck it in the bin. Um, well, that's definitely icy, isn't it? I mean, just touching on those three points. Um, um, I think um, problem gambling affects uh, pro punters just as uh, unfairly. It affected me and I got shut down. Um, when I didn't want to be shut down and I don't have any problem gambling. There's a lot of people that don't have problems that get affected by problem gambling. And the more that you bet, the more risk that that's going to happen to you. Johnny Denen telling us 8% of his actual knowledge. What do you want? What do you want? 100%? What's a good figure? 25%? Would 100% be damaging to Johnny Denen? How long would it take to give you 100% of my actual knowledge? Maybe about five minutes. Neil Channing, um, mega successful, respected, well-versed, articulate, 
professional gambler and media personality. If he gave me his card on a piece of paper, I'd roll it in a ball and fuck it in the bin. Um, sometimes people are just like this. They like um, they get more enjoyment out of life. And what is it that you? There are a certain amount of people that always see things negatively. And certainly, there's a British. Um, personality trait that goes through that we don't celebrate success instead we pull people down um it's our nature i prefer the american um culture of celebrating success myself um and i don't see the need to be unwarrantedly negative and at the risk of being a front to icy's wrath in the future um i thought this was mean-spirited um keith the camel sort of replied jesus i see you used to be funny that's one mean-minded tweet you've made there um he says that neil has an roi of 4.75 percent on horses over 10 years a little bit under bookie bashing still extremely impressive um but not good enough for icy and i genuinely don't think that that's warranted i'm trying to see the positive that can come out from that i mean how do you, do you sort of sleep at night um if that is the mentality it's not something that i would like to do or hang around with but i appreciate that some people want to be like that i just don't think it's a great way of viewing life or um a perspective we should be celebrating not bringing things down especially when people dare to stick their head over the parapet there's a lot of people that never stick their head over the parapet and i think this kind of commentary just encourages let people to be sort of less out there take a risk sometimes you might get some stuff wrong these are people that seem to have got a lot right and are taking the wrath for us god knows what he would have said if he got down to seventh in the list but probably my favorite tweet of the year um was uh righty united underscore 15 who replied um i still think the lads that post the 365 slips under every betting tweet were robbed not sure i've seen them lose yet that's pretty funny. How annoying are those guys on Twitter that any single time somebody comes up with something gambling-related tweet, they've got a fake screenshot at Bet365 with insider knowledge and are just there to rip people off. You wonder how successful they could be because um, uh, um, if they weren't successful, they would have stopped a long time ago because it's every single tweet. All you have to do is click in show more replies under anything and you will um you'll see them but um yeah that was pretty pretty well articulated and i did chuckle at that one um this does go back to um as well the fact that in the sbc betting awards we won um three was it three or four i think we won three categories for gold and one for silver which was best horse racing tipsters best golf tipsters best overall tipsters and best sports tipsters and there's a long-running thing and it was even on our discord that um bookie bashing on tipsters so they shouldn't win the award war one we don't put ourselves forward for this okay two we have no control over the name of the category three um i think i've wanted to distance myself i've said in the past from the traditional tipster because the traditional tipster will provide a handful of selections um, with really not much other information, background data, sources of reference, sources of data, um, methodology. Um, there's not enough openness, I think, traditionally in tipsters. But what tipsters do do, I guess you could say, is they provide bets that people can bet on. Now, in that sense, 
half of bookie bashing, the tracker side does exactly that. It provides bets for people to bet on. There is, I guess, the advantage, the bonus that we have, source of information, source of data, databases in the background, algorithms, and we are very sort of open book, clear, open to criticism about the methodologies that we use to sort of try and help the more advanced advantage player enhance their decision-making to refine their ROI. But if you want to take the dictionary definition, let's do that. What is the Oxford dictionary definition of tipster? It is um, a person who tells you um, which horse is likely to win a race so that you can bet on it and win money. I mean, if you want to go down that exact definition from the Oxford Dictionary, then you can't argue that bookie bashing falls into that category. Although I do understand there is kind of different levels and the necessity to kind of separate ourselves from the Johnny-come-likelys on Twitter. Does IC ever tip anything up? Um, Maybe he does. Maybe he doesn't. I know he's on Bar Stewards quite a lot. Hey, be welcome to come on to the Bashcast and discuss what he does, but he probably doesn't know me from Adam. And I'm not going to lie, I don't know who Adam is either. Just a quick update on some new tools. Can't remember if I've discussed actually the rugby stuff before. So just in case I have, I'm just going to make it very, very, very brief. Just a couple of minutes here on these for anyone that has access to the boogie bashing tools ahead of the Rugby World Cup this September. We wanted to get in early with um, an X tries um, and uh, expected tries for both team and players. And now that I'm saying this, I do think that I've spoken about this. I think um, I, I remember that the X tries itself, which is available under Tools X tries, gives um, match tries, home tries, away first half, split by home and away, second half, split by home and away, and some Poisson distributions based on those expectancies, the source of the data there being um, either Sporting Index, Spread X, or both um, available also under the Bet Builder. I think I remember saying that the, um, the players... X tries, expected tries, was going to take a little bit of work. That has come along quite a long, quite well. Now we've got f- at least a minimum of five bookmakers for both, uh, for all players. So we've reversed, into, uh, engineered the expected tries for everybody, for example, in Rugby League and Rugby Union, Warrington versus Leeds tonight. Um, uh, is one such game so we again um plus on distribution works out over zero over one over two available under player x tries so you, often you've got these um uh, betfred um boosts available um which are just some some are good some are bad for some reason the double's always bad so one player and another player is always a bad price just always i don't think i've ever seen one that's good whereas the singles can be good i don't know why the singles would be good i would think it would be the other way around but that is what it is um and that's no, even factoring in the fact that there's some inclusivity there, although less inclusivity with players scoring than there in rugby than there is in football due to the higher number of expected tries. So that, that's really in a kind of beta mode um, ahead of September. Hopefully should be plenty of value around both in sort of bookmakers boosts, bookmakers standard markets and the exchange on tries and player tries there um, ahead of the World Cup. The next thing is the data archive tool. If you go to that um, in the drop down, we have six options there. You've got the game center, football detailed games, player XG archive, player stats archive, match archive, and bulk downloads. Let me explain what these are. These we On the tools, we've logged every single line that we've ever had at closing line. 
for the player XG, for example, for the player stats. That's how we came up with the analysis for shots on target last time. All the detailed stuff, every corners, every cards, things like that, all the match XG, all the game center stuff. So you can download that en masse, except for the game center, which has 237,000 matches and it's just too difficult to download en masse. That's why if you go into bulk downloads, instead of downloading the entire game center, select a market from the game center. So maybe home team to win in BTTS or team to win to nil or 2-2 or something like that. And if you select a single market and a date range, you can then get all of the competitions. You can filter by match favorite odds so you can get pretty evenly close matches or one with a very big favorite or an outsider if you like and then you can download all of that data still a little bit tricky to get or massive amount of data at once just because of the amount of number crunching that goes on in the background this is really the first version of a very much larger data interrogation tool that i want to look at but um it should give you plenty of uh, meet plenty of data for any personal analytics that you want to do very interested in feedback on this because I want to know what the um, UX should look like, the user display um, should we be bringing in results um, uh, which still have to be sort of manually applied in the background um, which obviously is going to sort of really enhance um, it, this part of it because then we could do ROI testing strategies on back data essentially and then um, sort of proof of concepts of calculations that are performing as expected and those that are not the last tool we've got um, we actually pushed this live a little bit early uh, but then I pulled it again so it should be available soon it's an outliers tool so what this will do across um, all different sports well not all different sports but I think it's basketball baseball snooker american football rugby union rugby league darts those kind of things um we have our own if you like personal odds checker we um it's a it's a sort of sister company to bookie bashing called odds hawk um we're very much aligned with odds hawk and um with bookie bashing and what we do is we go around all the bookmakers and collect the odds ourselves instead of using um, odds checker we sort of direct scrape a lot of bookmakers and this allows us to pick up data that maybe isn't on odds checker or if odds checker is wrong and because we've got all of this we can build markets like half time full time all kinds of markets and where there's a complete market we can um, see if there is a sort of a dutch available across different bookmakers now hedging's for gardeners of course but that means that value is going to be somewhere if you're getting 95 percent on the best bookmaker um over round across a, a number of different bookmakers on any market that is closed is complete where one selection out of all of that market has to win then you, there's definitely value somewhere the question becomes where and what we try and do on the outliers tool is find out where that value is is there a particular outlier what is the dutch is there a last price match arb or a lay arb that's available and um, we can have a look at each way outliers things like that um so filters available include the min and the max over round the minimum amount of bookmakers for something to be an outlier because if there's only three bookmakers you might not consider that an outlier maybe you consider eight bookmakers to be a outlier so you can um you can sort of calibrate that um there's another service out there i do forget the name of them it's something stupid like bet hard or something like that where for a relatively similar amount of money as book bookie bashing this is essentially what you get um you get like you know the, the number one market just now 
um, uh, is in Boca Juniors versus Monaga at 11 p.m. tonight in the Copa Libertadores. Um, uh, and I can go into that and I can see where the particular value is. Um, well, that's what they have over there. But that's all they have over there, interestingly. Whereas um, you know, bookie bashing for the same price, this is just going to be one extra tool. I think when it's pushed live, there'll still be a little bit of work on it because we're just going to need some feedback over usability or UX. It's essentially the data's there. It's how do we best present that data and make it available. The first version, you had to just drill into every single market. Too difficult to find value there. So we've tried to come up with a way of ranking the markets by the best. Hopefully we don't just kill the value by highlighting the best first. But um, that is going to be pushed live imminently and yeah definitely worth keeping an eye out on for anyone that has a subscription to boogiebashing.net Okay, I'm going to finish the Bashcast tonight with something I haven't done before and I'm a little bit uncomfortable doing it but uh, I'm going to try and do it for the right reasons because I think I'm deeply suspicious about something that I've seen and it's made me think and I'm going to attack this not from a, um angle of shooting fire. I'm, this isn't shots fired. I'm genuinely asking a question because I might be wrong and if I'm wrong, I want to know that I'm wrong. I want people to tell me that I'm wrong. I want to be told what I've got wrong here. But something doesn't add up to me. Um, so... I'm going to be having a look at a video, a strategy posted by a community called the Betfair Trading Community. And I have had Ryan from the Betfair Trading Community. It's Ryan and Martin. I'm not sure if there's another guy. They run it. And I quite like the idea of coming up with reasonable and profitable strategies on Betfair. Now, if people are going to trade on Betfair... I've always been of the opinion that there are traders and then there are traders. By that I mean there are people that, if you trade on the stock market, it's a zero-sum game. Some people will be in profit and some people will be in loss. And the filtering bias comes out of that is that you don't hear about the people that run a loss. And those that run a profit will say that they've got a strategy, they've got a winning system, they believe that um, their profit was skill and not luck. Whereas, in fact, they just flipped the coin and they landed on the correct side of it. Um, and then there are those that trade because they have tangible information that the price that they're taking is wrong. And the second way of trading is the only um, way of profitably trading. You know that the price that you're seeing is plus EV for you. Whoever's been setting it is negative EV. You have a barometer, a benchmark, by which you have calculated and estimated a price and the price that you can take is better than that. It's absolutely no different to value betting. It's just they're hedging. They're minimizing their losses. In value betting, as we all know, we um, have calculated a price ourselves and we can attain by the bookmaker or the exchange a price that is better than that, that is higher than that. But the trading community have that element apparently, I thought, but then they trade. They they go in and they come out. For whatever reason, they like to minimize their losses. And traders, you do what you do. You, you, you can play over in that playground. I'm going to play in my playground. I think hedging's for gardeners. I'm not going to throw daggers and aspire to people that think otherwise and that they need to lay and hedge and back and lay and in and out and this and that. So 
I've never really had a problem with Betfair trading community, but I watched one of their videos recently and I have questions. And if I'm wrong, I want someone to tell me why I'm wrong. But I wonder if I'm right. Because if I'm right, then what are they doing? This is um, an over under 1.5 goals trading strategy for Betfair. Okay, so let's um, play the start of this video and I'm just going to interject at certain points that I think are relevant. Hi guys, so today's video is going to be a great one. We're going to look at backing over 1.5 goals in play. This is a trading strategy. It's called Ryan's split stake strategy where we split our stake into two and we enter at different points and we trade out if it doesn't go our way, okay? So this is a fantastic Right, that's Martin speaking. And um, um, first point, no offense. I'll be the decider, the barometer, the if it's a great video or not. But okay, fair enough. He's getting excited about his video. No offense about that. And it's a split trading strategy. They're going to split the trade into two. Immediately, alarm bells are um, ringing in my head. What? possible benefit could there be of that surely you've got a price that's either good or bad if it's good put your stake on it if it's not why are we splitting our stake into two but maybe this will be explained strategy we've been using for many years on betfairtradingcommunity.com and i really really am looking forward to sharing it with you Okay, so let's now have a look at the strategy. Uh, I'm going to talk it through and we're also going to do some live trades today. Okay, so I've got a few qualifiers today. So first thing you want to do, obviously, is log into the betfedtradingcommunity.com website. What we're going to do here is we're just going to go to the football stats software, this lovely third button here, and then I'm going to click that. And as that loads, we're going to essentially get into the members filters here. Um, so if you go over to my save filters, and then the second tab, profitable members filters, and then we just want Ryan's split stake, okay? Now, I'm gonna talk through the rules first of all. We're back over 1.5 goals at 30 minutes for half our stake, okay? So let's say, and we're gonna use 10 pound stakes for this. So let's say you're using 10 pound stakes. Half your stake will be five pounds. The other half will be another five pounds, okay? So at 30 minutes, we bet on over 1.5 goals for five pounds. Right, okay. Um... No offense, I did get that half of £10 was £5. So the first part of the strategy, we're halving our £10, which is £5. And um, we're finding now over 1.5 goals in a match is already a relatively low odds. It's quite, you know, the average amount of goals in a match is about 2.4, 2.6 if it's European leagues, 2.1 if it's French League 2. Um, uh, so over 1.5 in a match happens more often than not. I'm just having a look at what we've got coming up tonight. We've got 1.15 is over one in the Jamaica El Salvador match. 1.2 is the next match in the Copa Super de America. 1.44. We're talking about heavy odds on bets that are going to happen. And apparently we're waiting for it to be nil-nil at 30 minutes. So, you know, if it's 1.2 pre-match, what is it at 30 minutes? Well, actually, if you've got a goals distribution curve you know exactly what it's going to be at 30 minutes um there are on average 27.26 goals 27.26 percent goals scored between zero and 30 minutes 
this is very key because we can take our xg for the match and multiply it by 0.2726 to get the estimation of there being a goal 73 odd percent of matches will not have a goal in the first 30 minutes i'd hope and this is something that set the alarm bells off for me i'd hope that betfair trading community were aware of this probability distribution and minute split of goals in matches because this is key to knowing whether to go in or not and it's key to knowing what the probability of the over 1.5 goals should be because you've got the xg for the rest of the match at 30 minutes from there there's no reference to this there's no reference to how often we should be expecting a goal in the first 30 minutes of the match and that's my first alarm bell if we're not thinking about that then where's the edge well let's continue and listen to the video we do the exact same thing again at 50 minutes if it's still nil-nil. Now that's an important message here. If it's still nil-nil. Any other scoreline, we do not enter the trade. Okay? Now, let's say you enter at 30 minutes and it's nil-nil and then there's a goal between 30 and 50. Then you're going to green up for a profit. You don't re-enter at 50 if there's a goal. Okay? So again, we only enter either of these trades. Sorry for some of the background noise there. That was my fault. But yeah. Um, 50, just over 50%, 50.08% of goals are scored between the 50th minute and the end of the match. So 49.92% of goals are scored between 0 and 50 minutes. Where's the reference to that in this video? We need to know, that's key and integral. To, if that's your decision making, whether you enter a game or not, this is something that you need to know. Why are we just coming in at 30 and getting out at 50 without knowing these facts? But okay. When it's nil nil. Now, at 70 minutes, this is really important as well. If there's no goal by 70 minutes, we take a loss. Okay? Now, this is important because we do actually save quite a lot of money by doing this. Even though, obviously, you're going to lose most of your stake at 70 minutes, basically, you're saving a fair bit as well. So, it's actually worth doing long term. Is it? Why? Where's the inefficiency? Why, in any match, if we back at 30 minutes even if we've pre-selected the correct criteria of matches that we're doing and then got out at 70 minutes is that profitable long term and just cutting the losses why is cutting the losses if it's nil nil at 70 minutes by the way at 70 minutes um 28.04 percent of goals can be expected to be scored in the match that's the xg that's the expected goals in the match why where's the inefficiency this must be some special criteria that we're using to come up with these particular games where it's been priced wrong I hope. We need around an 80% win rate on these um, to make profit, which we've been achieving. We've got the actual strategies here. So I'll just show you. Ryan split stake. It needs to happen 80% of the time to be profitable. Okay, 80% is um, 1.25. So it has to happen. It ha it, it, what are the fair odds here? We're saying that um, it has to happen one. 80% of the time, what are we getting? Um, 1.26, 1.27. These are thin prices to be value betting at. Well, they're trading. They're not value betting. Sample size um, becomes a little bit skewed when betting and looking at extremely low odds. Something that's going to happen way more often than it's not going to happen. But then you've got to add in the losses. You know, it's a little bit like value betting at 1.25. Of course, four or five, four in five matches are going to come in. But um, the one in five is going to sort of wipe you out. The losses have to be taken there. And so um, it's a bumpy road at 1.25. So I recorded this for a year and we got 
Now we know by doing the maths on win-loss ratio and how much profit you make per trade, you need to win about 72% of the time. So the fact we're getting near 79 is really, really good. Okay, there's some numbers to play with. So they're, um, they're getting, they say, 72% of the time, which is 1.38, and they're expecting 79% of the time, uh, which is 1.26. So that's 1.38 over 1.26 value bet, 9.7%. ROI. Um, there's no mention of sample size. Concerning, as far as I'm concerned, I don't care about the fact that it's over a year. It could be over a month. In fact, when you're betting at low odds like this, is a year enough? Um, what if it was five trades? What if it was 100 trades? What's the sample size here? In fact, more importantly, what's the p-value here? So statistics, the p-value is the probability under the assumption of no effect or no difference, which is a null hypothesis of obtaining a result equal or more extreme to that what was actually observed, i.e. your edge, i.e. the EV relative to the volume that you're taking over time. Um, under the video, this is a comment by someone. Somebody asks, um, you've recorded the results for a year. How many games? Was it skill or luck? What are the p-values? And the response from the trading community is, um, could you please get the p-values value for this? Because it's clearly profitable, but I'd be interested to know. And the reply, and it's a very valid reply, is you guys are the professionals. You should already know that. And they absolutely should. And the reply is, haha, most Betfair traders don't know their p-values. How often do you see that mentioned by pro traders? Come on, mate, you know this. Why are you giving me a rough time today. I really don't like that answer. And this is yet another slightly worrying aspect of both this video and perhaps all of the trading strategies at Betfair community. It was a simple question. Where is the edge? What is the sample size in the history to show the edge? What is the ROI? And how does that compare to what is expected, i.e. the p-value? Hmm... Um, so yeah, that's the strategy results. That's the rules of the strategy. Let's have a little look at the actual criteria. So as you can see here, to get the criteria, what we're just going to need to do is click edit filter. And here we go. Okay, this really is key because this is how we're going to use some sort of filtering technique to work out which games are value and which games are not value. Because of course, every game can't be value because if they are then every game is profitable to go in at 30 minutes and come out at 50 minutes and the over 1.5 market or really any goals market. That can't be true. So let's have a look at what the um, filtering is. We want home team full-time over 1.5 to be equal than or greater than 8. And you might say, well, so you want games where there's over 1.5 for the home team eight times, but out of how many? So that's where we look down here and our scope, I'll just highlight that here, our scope is last 10 matches, okay? So it's eight out of 10. So in this theory, we want teams where the home team's having over 1.5 goals eight out of 10 times, 80%. You see the trend, we need an 80% win rate. Same with the away team. Um, overall first goal score time greater than zero. Um, some people wonder like, well, why have you got this here? Because obviously most games are gonna have the first goal time scored greater than zero. Well, the reality is, that you can then, when you download the filter, as I'll show you later, you can actually look at that stat. And wait, 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 wait. What they're doing here is they're filtering on some sort of very recent small sample size of games 
um, where the team has got a goal in a particular minute with no regard whatsoever of the expectancy of number of goals by that team in those matches or in this match. I don't like this. I'm really suspicious at this point because recent history with no about how many goals a team gets in 0-30 to minutes, what if it was Manchester United playing a bunch of non-league teams in recent history and they got a goal in the 0-30 to minutes? Is that relevant to when they're playing Bayern Munich in the Champions League? Okay, maybe you're still looking at the same league, but teams go through periods of playing everyone at the bottom of the league and then everyone at the top of the league. The recent history against any particular team is not important. What is important is the expected goals that they have at uh, against this particular team, and there's no mention of that anywhere. They're just filtering on recent matches. This continues to make very, very little sense to me. Go, is there a pattern there? So that's why sometimes you have filters, and you might think that doesn't need to be there. And it doesn't particularly. You're not going to. These selections aren't going to change if you get rid of that criteria. It's just helpful for monitoring. Overall, goals score, score per match average three or greater. Okay, now this is important. We want games where there's goals. That's pretty obvious. Um, and then we've got a minutes filter here. So again, this is another one where we want overall goals to be scored greater than zero between this time frame. So you don't want teams where they're not scoring goals. Um, and then overall total scored greater than or equal to zero. Again, looking at that more as a monitoring filter. When you actually look at the filter itself, the key metrics are very easy. The words key metrics are never very easy. How does your metric relate to the overall um, assumptions that you've made, the criteria, are they relevant? What is a correct assumption? What is a wrong assumption? Key metrics are one um, part of the puzzle. They're certainly not all. The key metrics graphs for the golf is very useful, but you never just use the key metrics graph to go and bet and things. There's so many other things that have to be brought in. Nice words, little substance in my opinion. Eight out of 10 games for the home team over 1.5, same with away team, and then goals scored per match three or above average. Um, we've got some league restriction here, so I'll just show you some examples. Um, you know, We're not trading every league here. This has been tested thoroughly. We know what leagues we like. Current... We know what leagues we like. No mention of XG, no mention of the edge in the game. There are some good leagues and there are some bad leagues. Why? Why are there good leagues and bad leagues? Uh, there's low expectancy in French League 2. There's high expectancy in the third division in Spain. I mean, is, is it down to expectancy? If so, why aren't we talking about expectancy? Why are we talking about leagues? Surely any game with an... Ex I just... Hmm. Season, we've checked that box. Restricted going in play, really important. We need matches that go in play, of course, because this is a trading strategy, pure trade, and we exclude playoffs. That's the strategy, in a nutshell. Okay, guys, they're the rules for the strategy. So, now it's time to go and do some live trading. So the first thing we're going to want to do from this point is we're going to want to get the results. We want to see which games are we trading today. So my head's in the way a little bit here, but there is actually an export button. Um, sorry, actually, I'll save that. We don't need to edit the filter anymore. And you'll see the selections here. All you need to do is press export, and that will actually export the selections in an Excel document down the bottom left here. 
And if we click that to open it, it will open in whatever Excel we use. I lose, use LibreOffice. Um, so they're the selections. Let's click OK. It's come up on a different screen, so I'll just move it over to the screen I'm monitoring. And as you can see, here are the selections. We've actually got nine games. Now, not all these are going to qualify, because bear in mind, not all of the games will be nil-nil after 30 minutes. We're only interested in the ones that are. So they've used the software and it is quite a good looking software. The UX is nice to export an amount of games and whichever games are not going to be nil-nil after 30 minutes, they're going to go into. Why? There was an expectancy of the over 1.5 goals at zero minutes. We already deduced, because we know, that um, for at 30 minutes, 27.26% of goals are scored in a game. So we should know the probability of nil-nil at 30 minutes. What is their probability of nil-nil at 30 minutes in these games? They don't say. They don't work it out. And I don't like that. I really don't like that. Okay. Um, and as you can see here, we've got a lot of games in Netherlands. We've got a few games in England and some games in the Czech Republic. Right, okay. So nearly time for the trades. Um, we're going to look at the early window here. If we can get some trades on, we won't. I'm not going to film the later window. Um, so, Netherlands, Canber, Feyenoord, Herenveen, and 20. I'm just going to move that over to a different screen so that I can still see it. And then we'll look at the screen we're trading on. So, we need obviously Dutch Eredivisie. Um, and obviously, I'm looking at games that haven't had a goal. So, Feyenoord has had a goal. So, we can delete that one. Canber is still 0 0. And that's not too far off. Herenveen is nil nil so that's good so we can get on that one as well if there's not a goal and 20 nil nil okay so we've got three nil nils at the moment not too far off 30 minutes so i'll be back when we're ready to trade i like to use the bet 365 site for the actual time in the game as you can see here the clocks are quite good they literally show you to the second um, and i find them to be quite accurate here so camber's about a minute off 20 is about just over a minute off and the other game is 20 and here and Veen. So that's about a minute off as well. So Cam is going to be first. We're going to get on these really quickly. Okay. So we're literally going to get on these bang, bang, bang. So it's Camber, 20, here and Veen. That's more for me to remember here. And so about 15 seconds away. So let's line up Camber now. Odds. Let's see if we can get 1.34. Okay, a little bit of waffle there that he's not going to take games that there's been a goal in because apparently when the odds have been reset, it's not plus EV and it can't possibly be plus EV then. Okay, it isn't over 1.5, whatever. Uh, and they're using the time at Betfair. But he's on at 1.34, really low odds um, to be getting in at, but that's what he's doing. So um, I believe he's backing at 1.34 and then hoping there's going to be a goal at some point. So remember, half the stakes, so I'm going to go five pounds here for the first bet. I'm going to do this for all three games. Don't worry too much about filling gaps because it will get matched if there's not a goal pretty quickly. Um, I might try and get 1.62 here. Again, it's always worth trying to get an extra tick when you can. You're unlikely to miss out on a goal. Um, but even if you do, you don't, you don't want to be taking bad prices. Okay, so we're matched on Canberra. But critically, what is a bad price? What's a bad price? Right? So the 1.62 is 1.61 a bad price? Is 1.58 a bad price? What's the bad price? Why do we know what a bad price is or not a bad price? Of course, you're going to get matched after a few seconds because there's only 2.5 goals in a match. 
2.4 goals in a match and you, you, you're betting, you, you know, 0 0.01 under the odds or 0 0.01, you're going to get matched because the odds of a goal in the match as it continues to be 0-0 is going to slightly increment from 1.31 to 1.32 relatively quickly. But what's good and what's bad? What's good and what's bad? You don't want to take bad prices. We need to know what a bad price is. What is a bad price? It is actually extremely important in value betting. It's also extremely important in trading because if you don't know the price, then what's good and what's bad? We're matched on 20 and we're matched on here and Bean. Again, that's why you ask for a better price. Um, so that's the three first trades placed. We'll come back either for a green up, if there's a goal before 50 minutes in any of these games, or we will come back to place the second half of our trade. Let's just take the profit quickly here. So you see how quickly the goals come in there in the Ajax game. That's brilliant. That's a winner. Happy days. We'll take the profit and move on. Um, kind of wish the, the delays weren't so big. But okay, so here and Veen have just scored by the looks of it. Hopefully it doesn't get cancelled. And we'll green up here as well for our second profit. Just a case now of waiting for the Cambo game. And again, you're getting nice odds here as well, 1.62. And we can see that one's coming in. Okay. Now, I don't muck about too much with the cashing out. I think that's another thing. Don't muck about too much. Because um, you don't want the odds to start drifting again and, and kind of eat at your profit. Okay. Just to summarize what they did, they got on at 1.34, 1.62, and 1.33 in those three matches at 30 minutes. And then shortly afterwards, there was a goal in all of the three matches. Now, the over 1.5 price, I mean, two goals in all of the match, those three matches weren't outrageous at full time at 2.88. Um, I could work out the expectancy in the time difference because I've got goals distribution, but I'm not going to. But what I'm going to say is that a goal appeared in all of those matches. And so then they decide that it's now time to trade out and take the profit because, of course, once a goal has appeared, the odds have plummeted. But where was the edge? Like, wh how did they know that going the the price that they were taking at thirty minutes was a good price? They're betting down at one point three, and then something happened, and now the odds are one point two. Um, this this it's starting to sound crazy to me. Like, there's no mathematics behind this. This this really much feels like just betting at 1.2, 1.3, 1.4, something happening, cashing out, and then calling it an edge when no edge exists. It's finding signal in what is essentially a lot of noise. I don't like it. Um, so we've got one more trade left, and hopefully we can get a full house today. Well, it looks like we've had a really good result in Canberra because there's been two really late first half goals. I'll just show you here. 45 plus 5, 45 plus 7. So we couldn't have greened up. We just There was no gap in between. Uh, the bet actually has won. So we've literally won one, greened up in the other two. Now, steady on. I don't want to get too excited. Your 1.33 bet came in. Okay, you didn't let it run to 90 minutes, but you got in at 30 minutes when 28.21% of um, goals are scored. You were going to get out at 50 minutes when 48.78% of goals are scored. So between those two times, you would expect somewhere in the region of 20% of the XG of the goal expectation of goals in the match to be scored. One fifth of all goals in these high scoring Dutch leagues are going to be scored in that time. So what? 
like you had a really good result by a 1.33 coming in. Um, you didn't have to trade out. How good was that? Goes back to what is the p-value? What is the probability under the assumption of no effect or no difference of obtaining a result equal to or more extreme than that w- that was actually observed? That's what I would like to know. Um, all before half time. Happy days now. It's done well. We have nearly an 80% win rate. And as you can see here, three out of three, pretty easy in the end. Um, so, yeah, that's the over 1.5 goals strategy. Ryan split stake. There's a reason it's so popular over at betplayertradingcommunity.com. It's the trading strategy for football we actually advise people to start with because it's really easy to follow, it's really easy to do, and it makes money. You know, that's important, right? Anyway, guys, hope you have a great day. And most importantly, hope you make some money trading on Betfair. Look, don't throw rocks in glass greenhouses. Is that the phrase? Always make sure your bed's made before you make somebody else's bed. Is that the phrase? I don't know what the phrase is. What I'm saying is that it's not my job to cast aspersions or shit on anybody else's parade. It's just I don't see in anywhere in that video where there's any tangible or discernible edge. I don't see any estimation of expected goals pre-match at 30 minutes or at 50 minutes. I don't see any sort of interpretation of what the XG decay rate is between 30 minutes and 50 minutes and what it should be reset to when there is a particular goal. It seems to me that we're getting in at good odds, but what are good odds? Are good odds just the odds at 30 minutes? I'm deeply, deeply suspicious that there is, in fact, no edge here whatsoever. But because we're betting at 1.3, it's very good for beginners because bets at 1.3 seem to come in and look we're staking five quid at 1.3 and we're probably trading five quid out um at 1.5 or whatever but just pennies lost nobody notices it here's my question and i want people to get in touch if i'm wrong because i genuinely genuinely i'm interested to know what i'm missing here and i am well i welcome anybody whether they're a trader at betfair trading community or even one of the owners, to come on and explain the mathematics of the edge that exists here when we are going in at a price without any estimation of expected goals at a particular price point, without any understanding or estimation of the decay rate and probability of goals that are scored per minute in that game. And then for some reason at 50 minutes, an arbitrary time, as far as I'm concerned, is a time where we do something else and we trade out um, we split our stakes for another reason that I don't understand. None of it makes sense to me. I don't want to ruin anyone's parade. I'm not going to go on a long-running agenda against something being a scam. If some, if people enjoy a service and think that there is a community value behind it, great. If a service is purporting to provide strategies that are profitable, I believe ROI over a significant sample size should be provided and p-values as an alternative, should be provided. Saying that something is good over a period of time, we all know, especially in golf betting, is a little bit nonsensical. We can all run good. We can all run good at 1.3. We can all run good at 1,000 to 1 when 1 comes in and the next 500 don't. I mean, it's still a hell of an ROI at that point. So that's my challenge. Um, I'm not immediately rubbishing it. What I'm saying is that I'm suspicious and I don't understand it, and it raised an eyebrow of mine. So I challenge, and my challenge is out there, for anyone to come and tell me that I'm wrong and explain 
precisely the mathematics behind why this could possibly ever be a profitable trading strategy. Because if it is, what we're saying is that those particular market makers in play in those leagues have missed something the Betfair trading community have found. But they seem to have found it in extremely simplistic ways. And surely the market makers, if it is that simple, would be using the same filtering and just patching the particular error they, they have at, you know what, nil-nil after 30 minutes is the wrong price. Betfair trading community have this incredible filtering technique that will allow us to sharpen our prices. And those market makers who have a lot of sophisticated algorithms behind them would surely catch up. And then once they've catched up, this would no longer be profitable. If it's profitable to 500, 600 people over in that community, I don't know how many people that they've got, then surely the attention would have been brought to the people that set these prices in play with the sophisticated algorithms that they have. Alternatively, there's no edge here and they're just finding profit betting at extremely low odds because it's quite a significantly larger amount of sample size that's required to drill through the variance and the volatility betting at those particular odds, especially when we're backing and we're laying at really low stakes. It's difficult to see any PL figures at high levels of volume necessary for this kind of strategy. I just don't get it. I, I, I honestly don't get it. And again, not shitting in anyone's parade. I want to be. I want to be proven wrong. At this moment in time, I'm asking the question. Something smells. I don't know if it, if it looks like a duck and it wades like a duck and it smells like a duck and it flies like a duck. Do ducks fly? I don't know. It could be a duck. It, it, Tell me I'm wrong. Tell me I'm wrong. Whatever it is that you're doing this weekend, well, maybe consider going in on over 1.5 goals in um, the Netherlands leagues and then trading out at. 50 minutes for reasons that I personally don't understand or just perhaps maybe look at expectation of goals and just better odds that are higher than what you think the fair odds are it seems a little bit of an easier game to me and you don't have to worry about sitting around the computer until 50 minutes is why hedging is really for gardeners enjoy your weekend guys this is Tom signing out